Good morning. How are we? Doing all right? It's good to be together. Praise God. Man, we're here in the presence of God and each other to worship this God that we just sang about, um, who came and who lived for us, who died for us, and rose again uh, for us to give us new life. And uh, we're going to turn our attention to God's Word. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 9 uh, this morning, so I'll invite you to grab your Bibles or your device, open up to Matthew chapter 9. And we're looking at, starting at verse 9. Let me just pray for us this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, we thank you that we can be here uh, together uh, in the presence of one another and in the presence of your spirit uh, to worship you freely without fear of uh, persecution, uh, to open up the Bible and hear from you and learn uh, your word and what we're called to do with our lives and how it changes us and shapes us and transforms us. God, we can do that freely. What a privilege that is. And so we give you thanks and praise for that. And we thank you for who you are and all that you've done for us and all you continue uh, to do for us, God. And we just ask now that as we turn our attention uh, to your scriptures, that you would speak uh, with power uh, and with clarity to each of us, no matter what we're coming in here with uh, this morning, God, what our week was like. It might have been hectic for some of us might have been painful for some of us. It might have been really joyful for some of us. But we just ask that wherever uh, we're at this morning, Lord, you would meet us there and speak to us. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know about you guys, but uh, something that absolutely uh, captivates me and grabs my attention uh, is a good redemption story, a story of uh, brokenness and pain uh, that turns out to be a story of redemption and Greatness and a particular story uh, along those lines that has really captured my attention lately. I don't know if you guys have uh, seen it or watched the documentary, but the story of Tiger Woods. Uh, HBO put out a little documentary, a two part little series, uh, just chronicling the life of Tiger Woods. And if you don't know who that is, you've probably heard his name. Uh, He is by far the most famous uh, golfer of all time. He was possibly the greatest golfer of all time. And you might be like, it's golf, who cares? I'm not a particularly big golf fan, uh, but there's something about Tiger Woods' story that is absolutely captivating. And this documentary, uh, it follows his life and it tells the story of how he rose to fame right from his childhood, how his father trained him and raised him up from a baby to be the world's greatest golfer. And it tells the story of how he gets everything he could possibly want in the world, money and fame. Uh, He's possibly the biggest athlete, most well-known superstar Uh, in the world. But more than that, it tells the story of how he makes some really bad, really wrong decisions in his life that absolutely shipwreck his life. Right at the pinnacle of his fame and notoriety, uh, he makes some really harmful decisions that hurt him and hurt other people. He has multiple affairs, uh, cheats on his wife. He develops addictions to gambling and to substances. Uh, He starts partying in Vegas and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, And he ends up with a DUI. He ends up being arrested and just making all of these decisions that absolutely shipwreck his life. And you might be thinking, you're sick, Sam. Why do you like watching this? But the point is not that he shipwrecks his life. I think what captivates me so much about the story is that there's something in me. This, This documentary just leaves it hanging at the end, begging this question of can any good come out the other side of this situation? Is Tiger going to be able to pick himself up and get it together and actually do something good 
on the other side of this shipwreck that he has made of his life. And I think that the reason that stories like this grab our attention and captivate us is because in a way, all of us ask that question at one point or another in our lives, every single one of us has found ourselves in a circumstance where whether by our own uh, decision-making or the actions of other people, we have found ourselves in a situation where we are down and out. Maybe we've made decisions that have made a mess of our lives. We feel broken. We have found ourselves in a situation where we feel broken and we find ourselves asking, can God still do something great with my life? Is this the end? I'm at rock bottom. Am I going to stay here or am I going to get up? Is God going to pull me up and still be able to do something with my life in and through my life, even though I've made such a mess of things? And Matthew, in this story, he's going to tell us the story of his call from God, where God met him in his circumstance, changed him, transformed him, and then took his life and used him for something great. And Matthew wants us to see the heart of God in this story, that our God, God of heaven, the God that calls us, the God that we worship, is a God who loves to take broken, imperfect, sinful people and do something with their lives, something of meaning, something of eternal value. He can take the broken. He loves to take the broken, call them, and do something great with them. And that's what we're going to see about God and about his heart for us. And I hope that it's encouraging to us. Let's read this passage. Matthew 9, starting at verse 9. It says this, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, we need to figure out what's going on in this passage. We need to ask, who is Matthew? So Matthew is the one who wrote this gospel. So he's telling his own story of how God met him and called him. So Matthew is going to be one of the 12 who goes and follows Jesus around. You see that he rose and responded to this call to follow Jesus. He's going to be with Jesus, witness the miracles and the life of Jesus, see Jesus walk on water and heal lepers and raise the paralytics and heal the blind and make them see. And he's going to see Jesus go to a Roman cross and die and be crucified, be buried in a tomb and then rise again. Matthew was there for all that. And Matthew writes this account, this gospel, this book that we read that has literally over the course of history changed millions and millions of lives that has introduced people to who God is and literally changed the course of history through this account that he wrote of the life and the works of Jesus. But Matthew wants us to see that before that, before he followed Jesus and lived this life, before he was the one who wrote this account and saw all these things and witnessed these things, what do we see? Jesus saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And it's really easy for us to just read that and go, okay, that was his job. He was a tax collector. You know, he worked for Canada Revenue Agency. That's a fine job. But actually, we need to understand, we need to grasp this, what a tax collector was 
in this day to the Jewish people was the absolute lowest of the low, the scum of society, the ones who would be shunned from the synagogue, not even allowed to worship with other Jews. They weren't even allowed to give a witness, a testimony in a court of law. They were outcasts. They were considered the worst of the worst, the scummiest of the scum, the low of the low. And that was because they were Jews who were working for uh, the Romans who were actually in power over the Jews. And so these tax collectors were Jews working for the Romans who were to collect the Roman taxes from their fellow Jews. But what they were allowed to do by the Romans was to collect way more than the taxes actually were. So they could basically charge their fellow Jews however much money they wanted. And so they were getting, there were Jews getting rich off of the backs of other Jews. They were traitors, right? They were sellouts to the Roman Empire. And as one author says, this would be almost on the same level as in the World War as a Jew working for the Nazis, It was that level of just absolutely despising these people, these tax collectors. They were the worst of the worst, the outcasts. And that's Matthew. Matthew wants us to see that he, when Jesus met him, that's where he was at. He had given his life to scamming his fellow Jews, his fellow countrymen, getting rich. He would have been very wealthy, getting rich off of their backs, off of their pain, oppressing them, the poor. He was like a reverse Robin Hood kind of. He was taking from the poor, giving to the rich, and getting rich off of it himself. That's who he was. And Matthew wants us to notice here that when Jesus meets him and sees him and looks at him, what does he see? Because the Jews, the other Jews, all of culture, all of society looked at him as the worst of the worst, the scum. They had written him off. But what does Jesus see? He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And what does Jesus do? Does he condemn him? Does he say, you are the worst? Does he heap shame and guilt and condemnation on him? No, he walks up to him and says, follow me. That's powerful. He doesn't condemn Matthew. He sees him in all of his brokenness, in all of his selfishness, you know, gaining, profiting off of the pain of other people. He's given his whole life to this endeavor. endeavor. He's corrupt to the core. But what does Jesus see in him? Not that evil person that he is, that corruption. He sees who Matthew is supposed to be, who he wants Matthew to be. He doesn't condemn him. He says these words. He gives this undeniable call to Matthew, follow me into something better. I've got something better for you, Matthew. I see that you're down. I see that you are making these decisions. I see that you've made an absolute mess of your life. You're empty. You have riches, you have gain, you have all these things, but you're missing what actually matters. Come and follow me. Jesus doesn't see who Matthew is at his worst moment, at the worst, lowest point of his life, in his worst sin. He sees who he wants him to be. And he gives this call, follow me to better. I've got better for you. And we need to understand what this call is to follow Jesus. And we need to see here, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the God who brings greatness out of brokenness. Jesus brings greatness out of brokenness. Because he sees Matthew doing what he's doing, living the life that he's living And he calls him into something way better. He calls him to leave that life of sin, that life of corruption and evil behind and follow him into something way better. And it's not a call into something comfortable and easy. We need to understand what the call is to follow Jesus. It's not a call to necessarily health and wealth and prosperity like we get told. Sometimes Matthew already has all that, right? He's already rich. He's wealthy. 
But Jesus sees that he's missing the one thing that actually matters, the one thing that he actually needs. He's missing real life. He needs forgiveness. He needs redemption. This is the Jesus who says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? I think that was the reality for Matthew. He had gained what in his mind was the whole world, but he had forfeited his soul. Jesus says, follow me into something better. Not into something safe, but something that actually means something. That is the call to follow Jesus. It's a call into mission. It's a call into adventure. It's a call to actually do something with your life that means something. Right? And we need this. We need a clear sense of purpose. We need a clear sense of mission or else what do we do? We just float. We drift. I was reading this week. There's a a very famous psychologist. His name is Philip Zimbardo. And you might know him if you're you know psychology at all. He's considered the, the voice and the face of contemporary psychology. He did uh, what was famously known as the Stanford Prison Experiment. But he did a study. He wanted to study hundreds and hundreds of young men. Because what he was seeing, what he was finding, was that we have a whole generation of young men that are lagging way behind academically, that are lacking purpose and mission and motivation in the world. And it's a whole generation of young boys, young men who are basically just sitting around addicted to pornography and addicted to video games. And what he found studying their neurobiology, studying their lives was that the reason for this was because these young men lacked a sense of purpose and a sense of mission in their lives. They didn't know how to socialize, to make friends, to go out in the world. He was finding that uh, the reason that they sit at home and just lock themselves in their rooms and play video games and watch pornography was because their virtual world, their virtual reality was more stimulating and gave them more sense of mission and purpose than their real lives outside of these virtual false realities. How scary is that? We see this time and time again. I was also reading a couple of articles this weekend uh, of some veterans, some war veterans who have come back from Iraq and from Afghanistan who've just been right in the heat of battle, in the thick of it, fighting side by side, some of them wounded, some of them sent home, whatever. And what we've, we've found since the world wars, they've been studying soldiers who have come home for years and years and years. And what is so often the case is that these soldiers come home to the safety and the comfort of their lives back home out of the war And they actually miss the heat of battle. They want to go back. Because every single day they woke up next to their brothers and sisters in the trenches, bullets flying over their heads, the risk of danger, the risk of injury and of death every day. But they woke up with a sense of purpose. They woke up with a sense of mission that I'm actually here side by side, linking arms with my brothers and sisters to actually do something. We're fighting for something. This means something. And then they come home and it's shopping malls and it's Saturday cartoons, and it's sitting around working an average, normal, boring job, and they miss the sense of adventure, the sense of call, even though it was dangerous. That's what Jesus calls us to. He says, follow me to a life of, this is what I'm doing. This is the Jesus who who says, I'm going to go and build my church, and I'm going to march against the gates of hell, and the gates of hell will not prevail. It's mission. He says, follow me into this life of pushing back evil and darkness in the world with the light, with the truth of God, the truth of the gospel. That's what I'm calling you to. Jesus offers us, he calls us into this sense of mission, this sense of purpose that we can actually do something of meaning with our lives. Matthew wants us to notice something. He does something really beautiful and poetic here. 
the end of verse 9, Jesus says, follow me. And it says, and he rose and followed him. Look at that word, he rose and followed him. Matthew wants us to notice something here. The story, if you look in your Bibles, right before this one is the story, you might know it, of the paralytic uh, who he's, he's paralyzed, he's on a mat, and his friends want so badly to bring him to Jesus for healing that they actually lower him through the roof on this mat so they can get him to Jesus. And Jesus says, I see you, your sins are forgiven. And then he heals him. He says, stand up, rise, pick up your mat and go home. This man who's been paralyzed for, we don't know how long, he's been paralyzed, unable to use his legs. Jesus looks at him and says, get up, rise. And it's the same language that Matthew uses in this story that he uses in that story. In that story, it says, and he rose and went home. Jesus said to him, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And then Matthew uses that same word in our passage here to describe himself, to describe him responding to the call of Jesus. It says he rose and followed him. And what Matthew is saying is that just like this paralyzed man was down on a mat, unable to walk, unable to use his legs, he's living this half-life, this paralyzed life, he's down. He's saying, I was just like this paralyzed man. I was living this life down. I was living this half-life. I was getting gain and profit and money from my fellow Jews and I was rich and I was killing it, but I wasn't actually alive. I wasn't actually living and Jesus called me to get up from that, to get up from my sin, to get up from my brokenness and rise and follow him into something better. And that same call is still alive. That same call is still going out to us and we need to hear that call of Jesus, that call, follow me, rise, get up. I think so many of us, we stay down in our sin. We feel like we can't go to God. We feel like we've sinned our way out of the grace of God. We've made such a mess of our lives. We're so broken that we can't, God's not gonna do anything with our lives. He can't use us for something great. And that's the call to us is no, get up, rise. Some of us, God has been speaking to us and working in our lives and calling us for a while, working through people and circumstances and brokenness, calling us, get up, rise. I know you feel down. I know you feel like this paralyzed guy, like you can't get up, like you can't live, like you can't move forward to something better with your life. Get up, rise. And he rose and followed him. And verse 10 says, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? We see here another thing about the beautiful heart of God. We see that Jesus pursues the suffering and sinful, not the self-righteous. He pursues the suffering and sinful. We see that Jesus loves to be around broken people. Jesus loves to be around the sinful messes of the world, the people who are broken, the people who have made mistakes, who have made a wreck of their lives. These are the people that Jesus loves to be around. Again, we need to look at Matthew's language here. Look what it says. It says, behold. It says, pay attention. Look at this. I want you to not miss this. Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus. Many. Matthew wants us to see that he's not a one-off exception. He's not like the one sinful, broken guy that Jesus likes to be around. 
Matthew's stoked that he's responded to this call to follow Jesus. He's been given this new life, and so he has a little dinner party. He invites his tax collector and sinner friends over, and it says Jesus was reclining with them. Jesus is kicking back. Jesus has got some food and some wine, probably. He's relaxing at the dinner table, and it says many tax collectors and sinners. Jesus surrounds himself with these people who society, who the culture around them has written off and wanted nothing to do with. These are the people Jesus surrounds himself with. And these are the people who it says they reclined with him. Right? Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus. They were comfortable around him. Jesus was comfortable around them. And this begs the question of what is our concept of who God is and who he wants in his family? Hey, what do we think about God? When we think about who God would call, who God would want to be around and want in his family, who do we think of? Because look at the question that these Pharisees asked. The Pharisees were the religious zealots, the Jewish zealots of the time, but they defined righteousness as separation from anything that they thought was unclean. So they had made hundreds of cleanliness purity laws that they were imposing on other Jews if they wanted to be loved by God and accepted by God and welcome in the place of worship, the synagogue, all these cleanliness purity uh, rules and laws that they had to follow. That's how they defined righteousness, separation. And so that's why they're so shocked and so offended that Jesus would sit and have dinner with these people who they had written off because they were unclean. And to have a meal, to share a meal, sit at a table and share food, share wine with somebody was a symbol at that time of identification. Jesus was identifying himself with these people, saying, I'm for these people, I'm with these people, I love these people. And to the, the, the Pharisees, the zealous religious people, that was so offensive because they thought that righteousness meant staying away from anything, any people that would make you unclean. But Jesus defines righteousness very differently. He defines righteousness as the love of God reaching out, seeking after the sinful and the broken and giving them a new heart that loves God and loves neighbor. Righteousness is seeking the sinful, being with the sinful, seeking them out to heal them. And it begs the question of whose heart does our heart more reflect Sometimes in this story, the heart of Jesus or the heart of the religious Pharisees, right? Do we think that it's the outward ritualistic, moralistic stuff that we do, the religious hoops that we jump through sometimes? Is that what makes us righteous? Is that what makes us holy and acceptable in the sight of God? Or is it our heart? And I just think of how this has happened in my life, how I've seen this growing up. Not a lot of my friends were, uh, were Christians. Still a lot of my best buddies in the world are not Christians. They're not church people. They didn't grow up uh, in the church. My, my best childhood friend in the whole world uh, didn't grow up in church. He's not a Christian. Um, and we've been through a lot together through our childhood, grew up together, all that stuff. I love him to death. And uh, I went out uh, to Trinity Western University out here, Christian University, um, and you're not allowed to smoke or drink on campus. You have to sign this community covenant uh, that says you're not going to do that. Um, but this is my childhood best friend. And he, he sees me go off to, to university and sees me make all of these amazing new friends and people that he wants to meet. He's, he's back in Edmonton. And, uh, and I just remember we were going on a trip together. His little brother played in the WHL. So we drove down to Seattle to watch a couple games. Uh, and then we drove back. And on the way back, we were going to sleep uh, in my dorm at university, 
uh, together. And he was going to hang out with all my friends. Most of them are Christians, uh, good, you know, shiny, nice Christian folk. And he was so excited uh, to meet them and to hang out with them. These are Sam's, you know, new friends, his new buddies. And uh, he, had a few, he had a few beverages at the game. Um, and uh, we got back to the, the campus, and he's so excited to come and hang out with my friends and meet them. Um, but unfortunately, he, he walks in, and there's couches. There's a big common area in our dorm and just full of people. And uh, he kind of trips over the couches, <laughs> falls over. Good intro. Um, and he has a cigarette in his mouth. And, you know, he's kind of rough around the edges. And he's going, hey, what's up, everybody? He's dropping F-bombs a little bit here and there. That's, he's Alberta. That's how he speaks. And, uh, but he's just so excited to meet my friends. And they looked at him like he was an, like I had just brought an alien into our dorm. Like I had just brought E.T. into our dorm. The look on their faces and just the absolute shock, the absolute like, this is your best friend that we've heard about? And uh, he, he left, and he walked away, and he left feeling like, okay, this is what Christians are about, I guess. These are your Christian friends. And I got a talking to later from some of the leadership in the, in the dorm about, hey, we're, we're concerned about you. We're concerned. This is your best friend. We're a little concerned. How backwards is that? Right? And so I walk away with my best buddy. This is his first impression hanging out with Christian people. And he goes, I guess I'm not good enough to hang out with you. I guess I'm not good enough. I guess I won't be welcome back here. And I think we miss so many opportunities to do what Jesus did, to surround ourselves with these people who might not look like us, live like us, speak like us, act like us, and to come alongside of them and him and I, my buddy, we, we have so many conversations since then about I'm able to come alongside of him and just go, no, dude, I don't think that I'm better than you. Those people in there who are looking down on you, they're not better than you. Because it's something he always says, is, I guess I'm just not, I'm not good enough. I can never do what you do. I can never live that kind of life that you life. I'm just, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. What is our answer to that? Right? Is it, yeah, I guess you're not good enough. Or is it, hey man, I'm just as broken as you are. I'm just as prone to temptation and to sin and to things that could shipwreck my life as you are. The only difference is that God met me in that and I responded to his gracious invitation to be forgiven and made new. That's the only difference between us. And I wonder how many opportunities like that we miss because we're too busy thinking about the externals. We're too busy jumping through moral hoops, thinking that that's what makes us righteous. And my question for us is, would anybody ask this question that the Pharisees ask of Jesus? Would anybody ask that about our lives? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Do we actually spend time? Do we hang out with? Do we share meals with? Do we do stuff with anybody who doesn't believe what we believe, who doesn't live like we live, think like we think, look and speak like we think and look and speak like, who do we surround ourselves with? Would anybody ask this question of your life? And look at Jesus' response to the Pharisees. But when he, Jesus, heard it, 
He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Look at that response. Jesus says, you've gotten it backwards. I came not to call the righteous, or that could be phrased the self-righteous, but sinners, the sick have need of a physician, not the well. What Jesus is saying there, he's not saying, you know, some people are just, you know, naturally morally good and they're right, they're well, they're not sick, they don't need me. And some people are sick and sinful and they need me. He's saying everybody, this is the point, everybody's sick, right? We're all sick in some sense. We're all broken naturally by our nature. We're all broken. We're all imperfect. What he's saying is some people are able to be humbled. They're able to to be humble enough to actually realize it and face it. And those are the people that I came for. Those are the people for which my grace is going to be active in their life, in their heart, and actually be able to do something with them. It's the hard-hearted, cold, callous, religious people who already think they're righteous without me because they do certain ritualistic, moralistic things. It's those people for whom my grace will be be no good because they think they don't need it. I came for those who know that they're sick, who know that they're broken, who know that they can't clean themselves up enough on their own. Maybe you guys have heard this or or thought this yourself, but something my my friends always say is, you know, I could never come to church with you because I'll walk through the front doors and I'll burst into flames. And that was the case with our our wedding. Sarah and I, we got married uh, here. And uh, some of my buddies were like, where are you getting married? Oh, at my church. And they're like, oh, Guess I can't come then. I'll burst into flames when I walk in. I was like, dude, it's an old movie theater. (laughs) Like, you're in more danger of getting old sticky Dr. Pepper on your shoes than bursting into flames. Like, but this is the thought, right? It's like, I'm not good enough for church. I'm not clean enough to come and to sit here and to do this stuff and to sing these songs and to, to whatever. And maybe you've felt that. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've felt that yourself. Maybe you felt like sitting in your community group or sitting you know, in a service or being around Christian people, maybe you felt like you can't be authentic. You can't be raw and real and honest about where you're actually at, about what your fears are, your doubts, your insecurities, your sin, right? Maybe you felt you've been going through something. Maybe you've been struggling. You've been giving in to sin. You've been, you know, living in some kind of secret sin or whatever, and you feel like you can't disclose it. You feel like you can't tell it to anyone. Why? Because you'll be judged because they'll think you're not clean enough and you're not good enough. And we just need to realize how backwards that is, right? Like if church is not the place, if your community group, if this body, this community, this group of people who are defined by the saving grace, the unmerited favor and forgiveness of God, if a people who are defined by grace are not a people in which other people can feel comfortable to disclose their brokenness and to seek hope and healing and forgiveness for that brokenness, then where? If it's not the church, then where? Right? God never meant to, Jesus never meant to build a group of people who are just this shiny, nice-looking, comfortable, you know, group of moralistic people who go through the religious ceremonies and jump through the religious hoops, but whose hearts are far from him. Uh, one author has said that, you know, the church is never meant to be a country club. 
It's meant to be a hospital. It's not a country club, it's a hospital. It's not a place, a nice little social club for us to just sit around and have our Christian music and our Christian movies and our Christian little subculture and all of our Christian things that we do and have no idea what's going on in the outside world, like we're Hogwarts or something. You know, like we don't understand what the culture is doing, what the culture is saying. We're out of step with the pains and the struggles and the joys and the things that the world is doing, things that the world is feeling. We're meant to be more like a hospital where people who are hurt and who are broken feel that they can come, they want to come. People who are seeking answers, seeking hope, seeking healing, who are broken and know that they're broken can come and find that as we point them to the one who has given us grace. A guy called Ed Stetzer, who's a, he's a missiologist and a church planter, and he's been planting churches and studying the world of, of churches and church planting his whole life. Uh, he says this, a church without broken people is a broken church. A church without broken people is a broken church. If this is not a body of people, a community, a place full of people who can actually admit that they're broken and sinful and struggle with things and come to find answers and hope, then we've strayed from the heart of God. The heart of God is for the hurting, the sick, the sinful, the broken R.C. Sproul is a very well-known theologian. He passed away a couple years ago. Just brilliant theologian and pastor and just a beautiful, beautiful man. Um, and uh, he, was, he tells a story where he was once asked by a young pastor, how can I, how can I build my church? How can I grow uh, my church? And uh, R.C. says, well, you could do what most people do. You could uh, put all your resources, all your time, and all your attention into building cooler, hipper, better-looking programs, you know, with all the shiny gadgets. You could put your, your time and everything into your programs and try to do it better than the church down the road is doing it. Try to have better programs, better little things, better worship services, the lights and the sounds and the gadgets. You could do that, and you could probably be successful. You could probably, more people will probably come. Or you could build your church the way that Jesus built the church, and you could go where the pain is. You could go where the pain is because that's where the heart of God is. Isn't that true? You know, are we trying to just win more people who are already shiny and nice and look and sound like us? Or are we going where the pain is? Are we seeking out the people who are broken, who are lost, who we know are far from God and providing love and answers and hope to them? Are we going where the pain is? Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, because I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is quoting Hosea 6, 6, which says this. I think we've got it. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. He's saying, what I desire, what my heart is for you, my people, is to not just have you go through the motions and jump through the hoops. He's saying all the religious things you do, the outward worship and the moralistic things that you do, they're all good, but they are meaningless if your heart is far from me. I desire mercy. What I want is you. I want your heart. I want you to be so enthralled, so captivated 
by my love for you, my grace, my forgiveness to you, my mercy that I have poured out on you. I want you to be so grabbed and captivated by that, that it flows into your heart and flows out of everything that you do in your life, how you use your time, your resources, your money, your attention, your energy, mercy, because my heart for you, look what I did for you. Remember how in your brokenness and your sin and your situation, I met you there. I saw you there and I didn't condemn you, but I called you to myself. I gave you mercy and grace and gave you life. Remember how I did that for you and be absolutely pushed out into the world with that motivation. Go and hold out that love and that mercy and that grace. Go reach a broken and hurting and sick and sinful world around you with that. That's my desire. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Don't do all this stuff if that's not where your heart is. It's meaningless. Don't don't go through all the motions of outward worship if your heart is far from me and you don't care that the people next to you, the people down the street, your family members are far from God, don't know God, are living a a godless life and are heading to a godless eternity without me. If you don't care about those people, you've missed the point. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's why he came. And so I just want to say, God, in this season, this weird season that we're in, that we've been in, that we have no idea how long we're going to be in still, God is still moving in the midst of it. And this call, this call of Jesus to Matthew, get up, follow me, that is still his call to us today. He is still calling us wherever we are at right now to get up, come to him, and follow him. So for some of us, we're not a Christian. We wouldn't identify as a Christian. We wouldn't say that we believe in Jesus. We're still thinking about this stuff, figuring it out, asking questions. And if that's you, if you haven't felt comfortable in church, if you haven't maybe been around church much, my hope and my prayer for you is that you are starting to see the heart of God. That even if you've had bad experiences with people in the church, with feeling like you're judged, feeling like you're not good enough, to be there, you're not good enough for God that you would start to see his beautiful heart for you in your brokenness and start to consider over the next few days or weeks or months or whatever it is, actually start to consider like Matthew, getting up, responding to this call of Jesus, follow me in faith. And we would love, that's why we exist. We would love to help you figure out that decision, figure out that journey wherever you're at. That's why we are here. That's why we exist and we're glad that you're here. For others of us, we might need to check our heart a little bit and see if maybe over time our heart has become a little bit cold and a little bit callous with a religious spirit. If we have become more focused on the outward religious things, the things that we do, than the heart of Jesus for lost and broken sinners. Maybe we've lost that sense of adventure, that sense of call, that sense of mission that we first felt when we responded to the call of Jesus. Maybe we've lost that. And my encouragement to you would be, ask God to soften your heart again and ask him who, who you need to reach out to, who you need to speak to, who you need to go to, who you need to put yourself around who in your life, in your world, in your social circles, whatever, ask God who he would have you reach out to and just offer hope, offer love. And then for others of us, 
we are following Jesus and maybe you feel like you are absolutely stuck in your sin, in some kind of habit, in some kind of secret sin that maybe nobody knows about, maybe in your situation, with your life, with your marriage, with your work, whatever it is, and you're feeling stuck, you're feeling down, you're feeling so burdened and so weighed down by your sin. Here, see the heart of Christ for you, that he is still for you. Maybe you feel like because of your sin, because of something you've done or continue to do, you can't go to him, that he doesn't want you anymore, that you've moved past, that you've moved beyond God's saving grace, you've moved beyond the point he's just angry at you now. He's mad at you, he's closed off his face to you. See the heart of God. He hasn't leaned away from you, he leans into you, closer, in your pain, in your sin, in your brokenness. And he is still for you and he's saying to you, rise, get up, follow me, follow me, come to me. His mercy is new every morning, the Bible says. And so as we close, I just want to read this. This is a quote from Dane Ortland, And I think he captures with this analogy, he captures well the heart of God for us. He tells it this way. He says, A compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He has had his medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He is independently wealthy and has no need of any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. Finally, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care being freely provided. What does the doctor feel? Joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason he came. How much more if the diseased are not strangers, but his own family. So with us and so with Christ. He does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. What elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of the sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. That's his heart. You haven't moved beyond his mercy, beyond his grace Your sin is so bad. My sin is so bad. Yeah, that's why he came. That's why he had to die. That's why he chose to come and live the perfect life that you and I could not live. That's why he went to the cross, suffered and died instead of us and defeated death and rose again so that we would not have to carry that burden of sin, that we would not have to feel the effects and live in the consequences of that sin if we respond to that call to get up, come to him, follow him, the great healer, the great physician. And so as we sing now, as we close now and take communion and do these things, let it not be ritual. Let it not be empty. But lean in to this God who's leaning into you. If you need prayer, we don't have official prayers up at the front right now, but um, come find me. Come find somebody else. Pray. Get prayer for that thing, that thing that's on your heart. 
Let's do this together. Let's worship together.